Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Best Little Horror House in Philly. I'm your host, George Heffler, and this is the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And our guest today is Anne Hale. How you doing, Anne? Not bad. How are you doing? Good, good. Now, Anne, you're a huge horror fan, right? Massive. So we've gone through so many different like styles of horror in the last couple of years between found footage and then witches are kind of coming back in vogue. Mm-hmm. What uh, What's your favorite kind of horror? What's your favorite subject? I am a huge sucker for 90s teen horror movies. Nice, nice. That's that's a yeah. great genre. We we just talked about the faculty uh, in this podcast. Uh, another great movie. What 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 is it about horror in general that jumps out to you? What, why do you like horror so much? Horror seem, to me, I think, is the most creative uh, genre of film. Um, you have a lot more leeway. Like with um, romance, it's always it's the same story. It's the same thing over and over for and, sure same formula same jokes uh action movies it's all the same but horror movies i feel like there's so much room for originality with horror yeah a lot of a lot of creative expression that you can't really find in other genres Mm -mm. so Um, i I appreciate that plus if i can actually find a horror movie that scares me (laughs) i'm like elated yeah yeah that's the thing is that as a horror fan there's a huge difference between uh, enjoying a horror movie and actually being scared by a horror movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, the two are very different and uh, very fun in their own ways, but definitely um, they're, they're not always the same movie. And speaking of 90s teen horror movies, today's horror movie and the best horror movie ever made is 1996's Scream. And this is, this is the best horror movie of all time, as chosen by you. And I mean, it's it's a great movie. It's it's the best horror movie ever made. For those of you who aren't familiar with uh, what Scream is about, year after the murder of her mother, a teenage girl is terrorized by a new killer who targets the girl and her friends by using horror films as part of a deadly game. So right off the bat, just in that little synopsis, you can already tell that this movie has a little bit of a meta edge to it. They're using horror films incorporating it into the actual movie itself. And uh, you, this is your pick. What What is it about this movie that sticks out to you? Scream changed horror. Um, yeah, absolutely. It came at a, at a time when horror was dying, really. Um, they weren't doing well in the theaters. You know, people were coming off of uh, a million Halloweens, a million Friday the 13th, a million Nightmare on Elm Streets. You know, it, it had gotten stale. Yeah. Uh, Scream revitalized the genre. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I, I was looking at kind of the, the era that Scream came out in, and we were up to Friday the 13th Part 9. The 6th and 7th uh, Nightmare on Elm Streets had just come out. Halloween 6 was out. Child's Play 2 was out. You know, these slashers were a huge part of the culture, but they were also passe. They were definitely on the way out. And Scream was definitely an injection of new blood, pun intended, that kept it fresh. You know, it, it like I said, it's it's a very meta movie, and it took aspects of these movies that we know so well, honored them, but the acknowledgement of the tropes means that you can bend them, you know? And, and I think that that's something that Scream does incredibly well. Do you remember your first time seeing this movie? I do. My uh, My sister is six years older than me. And she was old enough. Let's see. I would have. I would have been 
12 years old when Scream came out. Wow. So she was 18. And she took me to go see Scream in the theater. But I remember the guy working the ticket window wouldn't let her take me. Because uh, he wasn't old enough to be my legal guardian. <laughs> what a narc. <laughs> right? What a jerk. So we bought tickets to some other movie. And I, I could have sworn it was Home Alone 3, but I'm pretty sure that came out the next year. So I'm I'm probably wrong on that. It was probably something like Jerry Maguire. Right. And snuck in. Wow. Uh, a great experience, I'm sure. And a, a fun way to see this movie for the first time. You know, I, I mentioned this to you briefly before we started recording, but my first time seeing this movie, I didn't like it. And the more that I watched it and the more that I've come back to it, the better and better it gets. Um, because you can really start to admire how whip smart the script is. You know, it is mm -hmm. everything works together. It's firing on all cylinders and it's really just an impressive feat, and it's something that bears revisiting, in my opinion. I agree. I mean, I watch it I, I probably 15 times, <laughs> probably 15 <laughs> times a year. <laughs> uh, you know what? I, I get it. <laughs> so you know, this movie is studded with credible actors, and mm -hmm. it's really interesting to see not only people who were famous at the time – but people who kind of this launched them a little bit as well and, and where they've gone from screen. So Nev Campbell, who is our main character, and Skeet Ulrich, who plays her boyfriend, uh, are both fresh off of the craft, which they were in together, mm -hmm. which is uh, another great horror movie from the time, another teen horror movie uh, about witches, though. Courtney Cox was fresh off Friends, trying to shed that image, and Drew Barrymore was just in Batman Forever. She was a huge star at the time. David Arquette had just done Airheads, which is a very fun movie that I enjoy a lot. Uh, Rose McGowan had done not one, but two Pauly Shore movies right before this, Encino Man and Biodome. And my personal favorite bit of casting trivia is that uh, Liev Schreiber plays Cotton Weary, the accused killer, for like three seconds on TV. I'm a big fan of Liev Schreiber, and uh, and he's he's great, and it's fun to see him pop up in this movie. It's crazy to think that the the cast almost wasn't who they were. Right. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Matt Campbell only did it because Skeet was going to be part of the movie, and they had just done the craft together. She wasn't going to do it. They Drew Barrymore got the role of Sydney. She changed. She's the one that had the idea to play Casey in the beginning, because if she died, then anything could happen in this movie. It was it was Hitchcock. Right. And it's it's it totally worked as well. Mm -hmm. And speaking of that, that first scene where where Drew Barrymore dies, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about that particular scene, because it, it's so iconic, not only for its own purposes, but it also has been parodied a million times, uh, you know, in actual scary movie, in Family Guy, in a billion TV shows and movies. Um, it's it's left an indelible mark on the horror industry and uh, movies and film in general. So Drew Barrymore is she's alone in the house and she gets this call and she has this interaction with the killer who is at the time you don't know who it is, but it winds up being Skeet Ulrich and uh, his friend Matthew Lillard. And they're it's kind of playful at the beginning 
And Drew Barrymore is is kind of given as good as she gets until it really takes a turn. Mm-hmm. And as things start to escalate in this first scene, it does a lot of communicating who these people are right away. At one point, Drew Barrymore is uh, running outside and the killer is running after her. And when she gets uh, stabbed by the killer, it really it communicates this intense desperation because he he's running after her and he grabs her and it's very haphazard and everything kind of works to further the script as well, even in this haphazard moment where the killer chokes her and that means that she can't scream for her parents who are right there and they don't they don't turn around and see her while the killers are stringing her up in the tree in a, a very uh, well shot homage to uh, the beginning of Suspiria and it's just so fast paced and clever and it's really one of the most iconic scenes in horror in, if not all the movies, I'd say. Yeah, I think it's definitely the best opening scene of a horror movie. Hands yeah, it, it's, a, it's a great opening. And one thing that I also really like about it, and this is perhaps uh, a, a, a kudos to Kevin Williamson, who is the writer of this, as well as the faculty. At the very beginning, when you don't know who the killer is, it feels like the end of this opening scene is uh, uh, just a cut, and then it goes to establish the character of Nev Campbell and her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Uh, he climbs into the window, they have a conversation about their relationship, uh, and then he leaves. But with the knowledge that he is the killer, it instead of feeling like a cut, it instead feels like an actual continuation of the f- scene before, where he's uh, killed Drew Barrymore, runs over and this is somewhere that he can lay low uh, and establish an alibi. And and so being able to go back and look at this movie with the knowledge that you have and get something new out of it is such a remarkable feat, in my opinion. Well, the, that opening scene, even that cut scene, that they're far more brilliant than I think people even understand. Right. You've got the popcorn that, as the scene is going on, as the scene is getting more intense, the popcorn is getting bigger and more intense. The popcorn is is moving with that scene. Yeah. So you've got that. You've got, uh, like you said, when Ghostface grabs Casey from behind, that's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm-hmm. That's when Leatherface grabs, you know, grabs her going out of the door. Right. When you think that maybe she might be safe, because it's Drew Barrymore, <laughs> and he gets her. Yeah, and he manages to stab her. In and even the cutscene, you know, Skeet Ulrich, who looks disturbingly like Johnny Depp, comes through the window. It's Nightmare on Elm Street. It's Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, you're right. Kevin Williamson is really brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> it's, he's brilliant. It's, it's remarkable. One other thing that I wanted to mention about this uh, initial scene is it's interesting how much context matters here because Scream came out in 1996, as we said, uh, and Jason Goes to Hell, which is the ninth Friday the 13th, came out in 1993. Uh, So it wasn't that long before Scream that there was uh, a Friday the 13th movie coming out every year or two. And he was such a a huge part of pop culture, Jason Voorhees, that it, it made sense that 
Drew Barrymore would get the question wrong when uh, Ski mm-hmm. Ulrich asks her who who's the killer in Friday the 13th. And today it's a little easier. We're a little bit further removed from those movies. So it's easier to look back uh, with a different perspective and understand the historical impact of Mrs. Voorhees being the killer in the first one. And now that Jason has faded from the zeitgeist a little bit, uh, Mrs. Voorhees is just as iconic, in my opinion, as Jason is. Um, it's it's an extremely well-known twist that she's the killer at the end of the first one. And, you know, looking back, you, you have to kind of put yourself in the shoes of someone who is immersed in the culture of 1996. And I think being able to do that is something that really... Um, kind of boosts the enjoyment of this movie it's tough when things kind of age in a way that isn't necessarily expected but it it still is a really incredible scene that has had such a huge impact and i also want to say that part of what makes this so horrific and such a, a great scene and, and movie in general is that it feels uh very real it's very it's Everything is so clumsy, and she, her parents are right there, and, and she's so close. Mm-hmm. And it's really uh, shocking when they walk outside and and she's in the tree. And like you said, it really establishes that anything can happen. Anything. Well, plus, I mean, caller ID went insane. People were buying caller <laughs> ID like crazy after that movie because yeah. it was so real. Yeah, it's 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 hard to believe there was a time before that, but uh, but it's true. And uh, I was reading actually a fact that it, uh, it the amount of caller ID bought tripled. My bad. So we've talked a little bit about the cast. Um, we have a couple uh, other characters that are really integral to the plot, including Jamie Kennedy plays Randy, who is sort of the audience perspective a little bit he he has an intense knowledge of the horror genre uh and he's the one who's like oh uh there there everything is established there's no there's nothing original if you know the tropes you'll be able to get through it and he he establishes these rules to survive a horror movie as told by jamie kennedy uh you will not survive if you have sex you will not survive if you drink or do drugs. This is an extension of the sin aspect of the first one. And you will not survive the movie if you say, I'll be right back, hello, or who's there. Now, and I got to get your take on on these rules. Do you think they're legit? Do you think that maybe they're, they were correct in a bygone era? Up until Scream, they were definitely the rules. You could not have sex. You could not drink or do drugs. You could not say, I'll be right back. Absolutely. You can't check a mysterious noise. I mean, if you were the bitch, you were you were gone. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like those yeah. characters, that's how it was. Um, Scream changed it for sure. I mean, look at Sydney and Billy have sex, and she survives. Yeah, a horror movie. You know what <laughs> I mean? She's she's the only one to survive. The only final final girl to survive every movie in the series. Yeah, it really is incredible uh, the way that they turn things on their head. And like I said, you have to have these rules in order to break them. And that's something that Scream does incredibly well. I also I want to talk about the director of this movie, Wes Craven. He is a horror icon in and of himself. He is known for Last House on the Left, The Hills Have Eyes, 
uh, Swamp Thing, Nightmare on Elm Street, of course, which is a huge, huge horror franchise. And it even gets mentioned in the first scene of this movie. Uh, Drew Barrymore claims that all the sequels suck. And, mm-hmm. and you know, this is Wes Craven's little, little poking fun at him because he was obviously only involved in the first Nightmare on Elm Street until New Nightmare, which also came out uh, a little bit prior to this movie. And he's just such an incredible writer, director, and and I just got to – what a shame that, that he passed away because – it's a, we just don't get any more, and that's something that's a real bummer to me. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. And and like we said, Kevin Williamson, uh, he wrote this. He he is clearly a huge horror fan. In addition to all the references that we already mentioned in the first scene, uh, Billy, the boyfriend, is named Billy Loomis, which is uh, an homage to Halloween, which which in Halloween was an homage to Psycho. There's the Suspiria one that I mentioned before. Uh, they're watching horror movies throughout, you know, the, at the party, they're watching Halloween too. Even in the score, when Dewey, who is played by David Arquette, is going through the house, he kind of turns a corner and there's a sting from Halloween while Halloween 2 is playing on the TV. And they really immerse you in this world of horror you are constantly being put in the mindset of these other movies which helps to kind of make you feel like you know where it's going because you think about these movies you think about the tropes that they're known for and this is kind of a way that scream can lead you down the primrose path a little bit in order to trick you at the last second nev campbell she has she has sex she survives for four movies despite it I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Nev Campbell's character in the context of the quote-unquote final girl. Um, do you think that she's a, a strong example of, of the final girl? Do you think that she's a bad example of that trope, but a good character? Uh, I, I want to hear your thoughts about her. Sydney Prescott was, is, in my opinion, the perfect final girl. She starts out um, very, I mean, she was a virgin, when she started out, um, I mean, she even mentions, you know, if Billy would settle for a PG-13 relationship by flashing her, her boobs, you know what right. I mean? Like, he's, that's her idea of sexy, I guess. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just that. Yeah. She's very innocent. But she becomes a badass because she has to. Right. Um, but she always kind of was a badass. Look at her, the way that she knocked Gail Weathers out, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. For her mom. She's She has it in her. Um. And I think Billy really believed that having sex with her would would weaken her. Mm-hmm. But it really just toughened her up. Yeah. It did the opposite. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. I think that she really is an incredible character. Um, she's among my favorite final girls after uh, Ginny in Friday the 13th Part 2, I think is also a great final girl. Um, but it's really great. I... Also want to give a shout out to the pacing of her characterization. The the script has a, it really drops character stuff in a way that keeps you invested. For example, at the beginning when we're learning the that Sydney's mom is no longer with us. First, she has a conversation with her dad about who says that he's leaving going to a hotel and he says that he's leaving money on the table. 
obviously, if the mom was in the house, you wouldn't have to leave money for your teenage child. So you're you're already aware that the mom is at least not in the house immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the police make vague reference to it, and you know they they mention that something happened to her mom, but they kind of uh, walk around it. They don't actually say exactly what happened. Uh, but then we get to see Sydney uh, watching the news. She sees Gail drudging up this history and talks explicitly about her mother's death. And the way that they bring it out in little pieces really lets you feel like you're getting told the story in a way that isn't just an exposition dump. It really feels like it's part of the story. It's natural. People aren't like, oh, remember that time that Sydney's mom got killed? That was crazy, huh? It's really wonderful the way that it's paced out. And I think that, again, this is something that Kevin Williamson does really well. In the faculty, I was really taken taken aback by a lot of the twists. <laughs> and it it's something that wouldn't be possible without a well-paced movie. Mm-hmm. And that's something that horror movies don't always do well. You know, sometimes they'll they'll rush it and put too like they'll show too much at the beginning. Sometimes it'll be too late. And uh, so just good on you to this movie for having good pacing, because it really is a huge uh, and a very important part of it. I wanted to ask you what you think about the explicit spelling out of the way that things happen. For example, the at the towards the end. Sidney Prescott is saying uh, that some stupid killer chases a big-breasted actress who runs upstairs when they should be running out the front door. They're, the whole movie is saying that all these horror movies are the same, and it's true that they're playing with it by acknowledging it, but they're still telling you exactly what they're going to do. What do you think about that? Well, okay, so, well, us horror nerds, we would know what was going to come next, right? Mm-hmm. Just like with uh, Casey Becker, those phone calls. If if I made a ran, if I just randomly called somebody and asked them who the killer in Friday the Thirteenth was, if they knew what Friday the Thirteenth was, they would say Jason. Right. Right. More often than not. Sure. So anybody that's not a huge horror fan isn't going to know these rules. They're not going to know that you know some big-breasted girl is going to run up the stairs. They're not going to know that they're going to go outside to check a mysterious noise. You know, the fun thing about it is that. <laughs> Sydney is making fun of these girls in these movies for doing these things because she finds them idiotic. And, right. and Sydney's incredibly intelligent, but she keeps getting put in these situations where she has to do exactly what she's insulting these girls <laughs> for doing. So she yeah. thinks that it's just a movie that they're making these girls do this because they're stupid, but really it's just the situation that they're stuck in just like her. Right. I think it also, instead of making it feel like a movie, it feels like that it, to me, it makes it more real because they're aware of the way that these things are going to go. And mm-hmm. then they still do it anyway. You're like, Oh, in the heat of the moment, I would do the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would run up the stairs um, because that's, that's, you know, you're, you're familiar with it. It's safe. Um, well, plus why I, waste the time messing with that lock? Yep, exactly. It's quicker to just turn and go up the stairs than to, you know, mm-hmm risk getting stabbed in the back while you're trying to unlock this door yeah yeah absolutely uh, and it's a re- another just really interesting aspect of this movie 
a lot of the dialogue in it as well, in addition to being a little explicit about the way that things shake out, uh, is very natural to me as well. You know, it feels like they are friends talking. And I think there's a scene in particular at when they first get out of school and they've all been questioned by the police and the principal and they're hanging out by, by the fountain. Um, and they're, they're all just chatting and you see Billy trying to get his friend and accomplice to kind of shut up when, when he's like, I didn't kill anybody. And he's like, no one said you did. It's the kind of things that feel normal they are having a very normal conversation that are friends messing with each other but when you look at it through the lens of knowing the way that the movie ends it adds a whole nother layer to it so to Mm -hmm. be able to do that and make it feel like a normal conversation is a remarkable accomplishment that's what kevin's really good at yeah with all of the movies that he writes he's really good at that yeah dawson's creek (laughs) it's okay it's all right we we won't talk about dawson's creek (laughs) just continuing along that path do you like to go back and and when you're watching it again i know you say you watch this movie a ton do you are you always looking for for things that you missed because for me at the very beginning uh in that first scene drew barrymore's boyfriend is tied up in the in the lawn chair outside and he's he's screaming no at her as told to me by the subtitles, <laughs> through <laughs> duct tape. His mouth is taped up, but he's screaming no at her. And the first time I watched it, I'm like, oh, he's saying no because he doesn't want her to walk away and leave him there tied up. Mm-hmm. But looking at it again through the the lens that I have now, I- instead of saying no, don't leave me here, he's saying no, don't play their game. There are like They're not going to follow the rules just like mm-hmm. this movie they're not going to follow the rules there's two of them and and it doesn't matter what you do um so is that, is that something you go back and, and you're constantly looking for for things to be colored by your perspective now i do it all the time all the time i look for little little things that maybe i've missed a million times before it happens um, yeah like, i'm sure um, you know the bathroom scene when the the cheerleaders are making fun of Sydney when Sydney is hiding in the stall and then they leave and you see ghost face you know you see the boots step down from the toilet and then and then the costume you know yeah. drops I I was so frustrated with myself that I didn't realize that those were Billy's jeans and shoes oh yeah I didn't even I hadn't even thought to to like compare them <laughs> You're for, totally years. Right. <laughs> for years I didn't re- I didn't notice it and yeah. then just once I was like, holy crap, I'm an idiot. <laughs> you know? Yeah, Like, absolutely. they focus so hard on the cop's shoes so that maybe you think it was Dewey. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, my God, it's the jeans. I'm an idiot. It's really crazy when something has that much attention to detail. Mm-hmm. So you've seen the entire franchise, I assume. Oh, yeah. How do you feel about the franchise at large? I actually love it. Um, three is probably my least favorite doesn't mean that it's bad, uh, but yeah, I'm I'm happy where it is. I I really hope that they don't make a fifth one. Mm-hmm. Um, it wouldn't be the same without Wes. And I feel like if they make a fifth one, it, they're going to have to kill off one of the main characters that right. you you have not seen the other one. So I'm not going to tell you who survives because <laughs> I want true. you to watch them and enjoy them. 
yeah, but, I, I am excited to watch them. And, uh, but there and that's are not characters that survive through all four movies. Wow. That atypical for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I feel like they'd have to kill one of them off if they did. Yeah, kill one. you you mentioned that Wes Craven has had a hand in all of the movies that uh, he directed all four. Right now, that's a feat that had never been done and has never been done for a horror never. franchise since. It's never been done. And that is such a crazy statistic to me mm-hmm. <laughs> because the unifying hand in it is so important, in my opinion, that it, it lends such a, a coherence to it. Uh, it's a similar thing that I, I like the Child's Play franchise a lot. And I think that that has to do even the the later direct video ones has to do with the fact that Don Mancini and uh, Brad Dourif are still so involved. So that voice is still there. And I think that Wes has such a unique voice that bringing someone else in to direct the fifth one uh, is such an impossible burden to place on someone and the fans wouldn't be happy. And I really, I agree with you that I I don't think that it's necessarily a great idea for them to do a fifth one, Mm -hmm. even though, we are horror has evolved so much since the original screams uh, in terms of not even just being slashers and stuff anymore. It could be interesting to see a scream esque franchise without maybe the scream name attached to it. That mm-hmm. kind of does this same trope breakdown and analysis while still being a good movie of some of these other uh, styles of horror movies that have kind of taken the world by storm. Uh, even these found footage ones, the paranormal ones, uh, there's been a lot of change in the horror industry in the last couple of years. Nobody else touched <laughs> it. Uh, all right. So we're, we're getting towards the end here a little bit. And uh, so to break it down, why is this the best horror movie Scream is the horror is the movie that got me into horror. Um, before Scream, I was terrified of everything. I was terrified of Freddy Krueger uh, most specifically because yeah. you know my first horror movie I was six, <laughs> and it was Nightmare on Elm Street two. Um, that's a that's a that's a, a rough one to to have be your first one when he when he climbs out of the guy. <laughs> it's, it's I had to get intense. on school buses. I had oh to get on God. a school bus here. <laughs> I mean, I was messed up. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of funny that it's Wes Craven that terrified me as a kid, and it's Wes Craven that really kind of cleaned that up for me. Yeah. Everyone, you know? everyone needs their one horror movie that gets them in. Yeah. So it was for me. It was Scream. Um, and then you know immediately after I know you did last summer and all of that. Um, so I, I have that movie to thank really for my life. Really, the, the way that I live my life, the the things that I love. Yeah. Um, I mean, the second you walk into my house, you know exactly what my favorite horror movie is. <laughs> there are scream, there's scream stuff all over the place in my house. I mean, yeah, I, I love it. Um, that's that's the thing is, it's, uh, once once horror fans are into a movie, it, it kind of takes over a little bit. I have a similar situation where I have a Welcome to Camp Crystal Lake sign signed by four Jasons, uh, a couple right? of Jason masks around. <laughs> I mean, so, you see so, my photo on the thing? That's Nick yeah. Campbell kissing me. It's, a huge part of your life, clearly. It's massive. Yeah. Um, plus, like I said, you know, it it really revitalized horror. Um, without Scream, we wouldn't have most of the horror movies that we have right now. We wouldn't have had 
God, we wouldn't have had things like Blair Witch, um, which had really, I understand it has nothing to do with Scream, but like. <laughs> Just the interest in horror uh, yeah. was revitalized. You know, and, um, and even the Blair Witch Project did that. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, horror is massive right now. You've got people that would never watch horror movies that are suddenly getting into it. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got horror movies being nominated for Academy Awards, winning Academy Awards now. An incredible uh, feat. I, I'm, I love seeing it. Right? So, I mean, without Scream, it's possible we wouldn't have had any of this. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I think that Scream is the best horror movie ever made because it's got whip-smart writing, like I said. it's It's got a unique voice. Uh, it's got great acting in it. It's, it's really a unique uh, Venn diagram of all of the, the pieces kind of coming together in an appropriate and and exciting way that's not something that's easy to accomplish and hasn't been done since which is why scream is the greatest horror movie ever made uh and i want to thank you for taking the time to talk scream with us uh it's been a pleasure having you on is there anything that you want to plug um no but thank you thanks for having me on i'm uh always happy to talk about scream (laughs) absolutely you can find me on twitter at gerg hef and follow along on Letterboxd. We have a, a list where we're putting all the movies up that we talk about, including reviews. Feel free to, to reach out. Let us know what you think about the movies, and uh, we hope to hear from you. Thanks again, Anne, and yeah. see ya.